Welcome to The Third Space, a show where we strive to reclaim the vital realm between home and workplace, igniting transformative conversations in the pursuit of wisdom. I'm your host, Avi, and my guest today is Simon Holloway. Simon is the Manager of Adult Education and Academic Engagement at the Melbourne Holocaust Museum. He holds a PhD from the University of Sydney in Classical Hebrew and Biblical Studies and a Master's in Ancient History. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. You came into my radar because I recently attended a talk that you gave at the uh, Melbourne Holocaust Museum, which was excellently titled Learning Torah with the Fuhrer, Nazi Readings of the Talmud. Could you provide um, a short summary for our listeners um, about the talk that you gave? Sure, with pleasure. Look, I, uh, it might be a little bit of a strange thing, I suppose, to be fascinated by, but I, I do find very interesting the ways in which uh, propagandists working for the Nazi party made use of rabbinic literature, mm -hmm. uh, given that there were uh, not a small number of individual uh, Nazi party members who professed some degree of familiarity with that literature. All I really wanted to do was to seek to expose what are the ways that they were using and misusing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that I first became interested in several years ago when I discovered that, um, that there were people who actually were devoting a not insignificant amount of time to uh, studying the Talmud. Mm -hmm. And in some instances uh, may indeed have actually fallen prey to their own unfamiliarity uh, with it. They thought that they were interpreting something uh, as it maybe needed to be interpreted, mm -hmm. but were making various mistakes, taking things out of context. And of course, there are a number of instances in which they quite clearly were manhandling the text, were deliberately mistranslating or misinterpreting passages. Uh, and so that, uh, that talk that you attended was one in which I sought to present a little bit of an overview as to the various ways in which the Talmud can be understood and to look at the various ways in which it, it can be misunderstood with examples drawn from Nazi-era propaganda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when the talk finished, I came and asked you about how these, this kind of like intellectual Nazi academics interacted with, you know, the common anti-Semite on the street. And you said that the, the commoners were emboldened by the, the research and the findings that that these, uh, Absolutely. these academics gave. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I, I was reflecting on it afterwards, I think um, it got me thinking about something I learned from Jonathan Haidt, if you've heard of him. He's a New York University professor of social psychology, I believe. Uh -huh. And his expertise is um, the psychology of morality. And one of his central points in his book, um, The Righteous Mind, is that he makes the claim that when we make a moral judgment, we think we use reason and logic to come to our position, but we actually use intuition and then fortify that position with reason and logic. So I wonder like in, in when you were delving into this particular topic and you were exploring, you know, like pivotal figures such as the German priest, uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. Johannes, Paul, Johannes Paul, people like that. Did you find that they were kind of coming at it from like this a priori position of um, uh, visceral reaction or distaste of Jews? He's he's a curious one. He's, he's so the the man that you've mentioned. Uh, I don't I don't know enough about. I regret to say to be yeah. able to comment really on 
what initially drove him towards this um, to this towards this sort of an approach because given that he had originally done a doctorate um, in um, uh, messianism in the book of Ezekiel and in as much as he had done this postdoctoral work on uh, Israelite society uh, in, in a, 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 you know um, ancient times may indeed have been somebody who had originally set out with the best of intentions uh, and had become himself convinced uh, by various ideas that were part of that sort of general mindset of, 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 of the time. But certainly when it comes to other individuals, um, uh, so people, for example, um, uh, goodness, like Alfred Rosenberg, uh, who's a very early Nazi Party ideologue, one of the one of the individuals who established the Nazi Party, whose writings on uh, the, the Aryan myth uh, and whose writings on the Talmud in the nineteen twenties were also very formative in terms of Nazi Party anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't I don't think that he approached things with what we might think of as you know the best of intentions. He's coming with that sort of that a priori uh, assumption, and it's intellectuals like himself. Uh, as well as those later on, like Johannes Paul, who are, as you, as you suggested, emboldening the rest of the population and allowing mm -hmm. them to also justify those a priori assumptions that they have on the basis of this understanding that there are people out there who are conducting that research that substantiates those ideas. Mm -hmm. I don't need to actually conduct that research myself. Right, right, yeah. I like, I'd like to come back to the, um, the, the mechanisms of how like, we use intuition to form our you know, moral judgments potentially later on. Um, but I want to kind of jump into talking about anti-Semitism more broadly. It's actually something that I've recently been very focused on, um, as opposed to in the past when maybe I uh, shied away from it because it's it's something that like, you know, growing up Jewish, you hear about so much anyways that like you don't need to dive into it directly. But recently I've been um, doing my own research might have actually been uh, brought forward by the book People Love Dead Jews by oh, yeah, Dara Horn. Dara Horn, yeah. My, my wife just finished reading it and Definitely. she's been talking about it a lot. So it's probably fresh in my head from that. But in doing the research that I have been on anti-Semitism, I've come to realize that it's kind of hard to pin down what exactly it is. Mm. Like a, coming to a concise definition or like putting a circle around what exactly constitutes anti-Semitism or not is not really agreed upon even in academic circles. And um, I wonder if it's related to how uh, anti-Semitism evolves over time, like in the, in the, in the pre-Christian era, how it was then, and then Christian informed anti-Semitism, and then even coming forward to modern times where we, we live in a more secular world, like post-Christian in many ways, but it's kind of morphed away into a kind of anti-Zionism or being sure. critical of the Israeli government. So can you talk about how anti-Semitism has evolved from, from your understanding? Look, um, uh, first of all, I agree, certainly. It's, it's my perception of the matter as well, that it mm -hmm. is something that has continually changed and evolved and metastasized in various ways and it, it, it's it's therefore perhaps um, a bit of a misnomer to think of this historical anti-semitism what we refer to as anti-semitism when we're thinking about the modern era if we're thinking about the, the 19th uh, 20th centuries is such a different beast uh, to that which had preceded it it's 
in some quarters, certainly religiously motivated, but it's now taken on more of a kind of a racial, biological uh, nuance. There is more so of that, you know, economic allegation uh, that mm-hmm. Jews are preternaturally disposed towards dominating uh, in, in in any economic structure mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and 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 asserting their will over over non-Jewish people, um, and uh, and it also takes on more of a kind of an apocalyptic notion as well. This idea that there is this t- ultimate plan of world domination by which they're going to conquer the globe. Uh, and, uh, and if we compare that to earlier forms of anti-Semitism or sort of anti-Semitism, we find that in those earlier years that, um, you know, Judeophobia or whatever you want to call it had, had more of a religious nuance that Jews could convert. Uh, it, you know, in theory, if Jews were to convert, uh, then that would be a way of, of getting rid of Jewish uh, influence and, and, and Jewish culture and uh, and so forth, which of course no longer becomes possible once we enter that kind of racial, biological uh, mode of anti-Semitism. Uh, so by the time the term itself gets invented and by the time the word anti-Semitism itself becomes popularised, it's now in reference to that biological um, uh, concept that there is something about Jews that is inherited mm-hmm. uh, and conversion isn't going to change it um, acculturation and, and assimilation, these things are not going to change it. It's something uh, innate uh, to, um, to Jewish uh, character. Right, and uh, there's nothing you can do to run away from it. No, yeah, yeah. no. Um, and, and of course, you know, by the time we get now to the, you know, these, these events in the, you know, towards the middle of the 20th century, the first plan, of course, that the Nazis had was just simply one of mass expulsion, just get them gone. Uh, it's only once we get to that final solution to the Jewish problem that that they create sort of a, you know an apocalyptic model to match what they perceive now as an apocalyptic threat. Mm-hmm. I've heard of a lot of people debate whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And for me, I, I find it a bit uh, difficult to pass through that one because yep. theoretically, I disagree. I don't think they're the same, but practically speaking, I do think they're the same in a lot of ways. And um, like, theoretically speaking, it's possible to be anti-Zionist without being systematic. Like think of the ultra-Orthodox community. Mm -hmm. A lot of them reject the state of Israel on on the grounds that they don't believe that it can be formed Um, based off like social or political um, uh, modes. It needs to come from like a more uh, religious or, or from God himself. times you know simultaneously it's possible to be anti-semitic and not be anti-zionist i mean if you look at pre uh, pre pre-israel times Mm. there were a lot of european political figures who uh had very explicit anti-semitic views and it was because of those views that they wanted the Jews to get out of Europe and go into the land of Israel. Well, if we think yeah. if we think of pre-state uh, uh, Zionism, there were a great many Jewish people beyond those whose objection to Zionism was religious in nature, who who professed a, 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 an anti-Zionist um, uh, perspective. Um, uh, the Bundists, uh, for example, as part of their core uh, ideological doctrine, opposed the establishment of a state. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were significant numbers of Jewish people uh, throughout Europe, throughout the world, uh, who continue to oppose the notion of, of statehood, even after the declaration of a state, who didn't subscribe to the Zionist ideal and who might have rejected uh, uh, Israel. And I think there still are today groups of people who are supportive of Israel, 
but who are nonetheless uh, anti-Semitic yeah. and who believe that by supporting Israel, they will usher in some kind of end times that the 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 they uh, uh, profess a belief in uh, that will see ultimately an eradication of Judaism as a distinct uh, culture or, right. or, or are you referring to like evangelical certainly I think that's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but I think um, I think in terms of differentiating them one from another in terms of knowing when a person speaks against Israel whether or not they are themselves anti-Semitic the fact that it is difficult to do so doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are uh, one and the same thing. Uh, mm. I think they are quite distinct. I think part of the challenge, however, is that by and large, as a general rule, people who are anti-Semitic are also anti-Israel. Mm. And given given the tenor of comments that people will sometimes make about the state of Israel, it can become very difficult to, to, to know where that person is coming from. And I think the lived experience that uh, Jewish people have had uh, over the last century uh, is one that has taught people to be wary. Uh, and if people tend to assume the worst, I think that's something of a survival mechanism. Uh, so mm -hmm. that while I too might find it frustrating sometimes when people do assume the worst uh, in, um, in in a situation. Uh, they hear it, they hear something, and rhetorically they assume that this person is coming from a position that they may not themselves be coming from. I at least appreciate right, why right, people right. may have developed a tendency uh, to do that yeah. when so much of that rhetoric is so nasty. Mm. When when I asked you that question in the first in the lecture that you gave. Um, I was referring to an essay that was written by Jean-Paul Sartre, the French uh, existentialist. In his, uh, the, the essay was titled "Anti-Semite and Jew," and he basically said that that Jews have been the um, perennial scapegoats throughout yeah. history, and that this is probably what explains like that that mindset that we were talking about. Um, and it serves the anti-Semite, he claims, an important purpose in defining their identity. Because in defining the Jew as the enemy of the state and um, opposed to the values and the culture and the tradition and even like the racial purity of the state, he implicitly defines himself then as the possessor of the land and protector of mm -hmm. the values of the state. And there's this amazing line that he has in the essay, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. He says, if the Jew did not exist, the anti-Semite wouldn't bend him. Yeah. This is excellent. Um, so, yeah, yeah. To, so to what extent do you agree that, uh, or do you think that Jews have been like uniquely singled out amongst other repressed minorities as a target for violence and discrimination? And, and why do you think that's the case? Look, uh, I always feel a little uncomfortable with these, um, uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? These sorts of you know pretensions of uniqueness, because there is certainly something unique to the Jewish experience. There, there is that which is unique to every cultural experience, uh, mm. and to every to every ethnic group, and to every minority, uh, and to every religious experience. There is that about it which is unique. Uh, and if we're thinking about um, history, and and even even where we just to limit our discussion to to Europe. 
um, of scapegoating. There are other communities as well that have experienced a long history of scapegoating. So if we're thinking about the experiences of Sinti and Roma peoples, um, pejoratively referred to as gypsies, uh, this long history of their being blamed uh, from every for everything, from from the plague um, through to you know the disappearance of children, the same sorts of things that Jewish communities had been blamed for as well. Um, there's there's a lot of parallels there, and 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 I and I picked them just as one example. I think there's a lot of different groups concerning which they inhabit that same position of other. Uh, there is something uh, about them that is unassimilable. Uh, they're not. They're not part of the state. And I, so I think the observations that um, Sartre makes when he talks about uh, uh, the Jew needing to be invented, something about the Jewish experience that made it. Um, perhaps different was the number of Jews that were found throughout the continent, uh, uh, not just um, on the margins of society, uh, but um, but by the time that he was writing, really entrenched it at, at various levels of European society, and that are nonetheless experiencing that um, that, that othering. Mm -hmm. uh, they're aliens uh, in states that they have helped to build uh, and, uh, and establish and usher into modernity. Uh, and it's... Um, as we know, becomes a very precarious position for them. They're very visible, you know, uh, out of respect to their actual numbers. They're very visible within uh, within society, uh, and um, uh, again, that's that's really a function of the modern world. Prior to that, they were perhaps less visible, but 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 still subject to that scapegoating, that um, that othering, um, uh, that that treats of them as an alien, treats of them as something that is to be feared uh, and, uh, and despised. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it also seems to me like they're kind of despised from multiple angles mm. as well. I mean, you, the, you know the uh, horseshoe theory of politics? Have you yeah. heard of it before? So it's this theory that um, the political continuum, people tend to think of it as a straight line. And on one end, you've got you know the far right, and then you've got center and then as you move to the other end you got the far left but it's probably more helpful to think of it as a kind of horseshoe mm -hmm. because as you move away from the center the far left and the far right start mm -hmm. to actually have quite a lot in common in the way they act maybe um in the same way they tend to think in in like a totalitarian uh -huh. ways um and um i actually i heard this other phrase that was so funny and so excellent um, that I, I, I want to map onto this horseshoe model, which is um, the phrase Schrodinger's whites. Have you heard of that? No. So Schrodinger's whites is this notion that Jews are both white uh -huh. and non-white, depending on your political orientation. Uh -huh. So if you're on the far right, you consider the Jews to be non-white because they're, they're this impure race that's you know polluting the, the purity of the, sure. the Aryan pool and they're an inferior you know, subspecies or something like that. And then on the far left, they are considered to be white because they're part of this mm. sort of patriarchal yes. elite ruling class. Which is nothing new. Yeah. We've, we've, we've witnessed this phenomenon for a long time. And I think it's sort of, you know, where we started off uh, today, you mentioned the degree to which anti-Semitism changes and, 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 and morphs and evolves and, um, and, and, and just as sort of a, a shifting and variable is the anti-Semite's perception of the Jew, uh, that they can, they can inhabit multiple uh, roles simultaneously. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and so in the eyes of uh, conservative elites, 
uh, Jews are left-wing socialist revolutionaries uh, fermenting for some kind of um, complete upheaval of society, uh, whereas in the eyes of um, uh, uh, the left, um, Jews are to be represented with the conservative um, old guard. They're like middlemen um, to, um, to, the, to, to the people that actually hold power. Both sides see them as a threat. Both sides see them as something damaging their own aspirations, but they see them as things that are completely uh, uh, mutually um, ir ir irreconcilable. Like you can't, you can't be both. You can't be both um, uh, a Zionist and a communist, for example. But the Nazis will talk about Jews as Zionists, as communists, as Talmudists. So they don't seem to perceive that what they're describing are these um, uh, mutually conflicting uh, zones of experience. Uh, the Jew is the capitalist, the Jew is the socialist. Um, Simultaneously. And um, yeah. yeah, and I don't think that's a new thing. We just happen yeah. to see it very, very strongly when it comes to um, Nazi-era propaganda. Mm -hmm. We find this in the Soviet propaganda, and we find this um, before uh, Nazi Germany. We find mm -hmm. this in, in, in um, periodicals issued in um, uh, uh, France uh, and, uh, and in Poland, uh, and uh, it's an old notion that when you have a group of people that you need to be other, then they will change depending on what you need that other to be. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I just had this random thought come to my mind. Um, I don't know if I'm overreaching here, but I've been listening to this University of Toronto professor recently. His name is, his name is John Viveki, and he talks, he's very focused on um, this project of bringing people back to, you know, old notions of, of ancient wisdom and, 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 and and practices and stuff like that. And one thing he talks about is the concept of the intercategorical, which is a thing that exists between categories and it, it's hard to really put a label on it because it doesn't, it doesn't map on very well. Yep. And um, he says that as humans, one thing that the way that we respond to the intercategorical things is to, is to find them weird or distasteful mm -hmm. or even disgusting. And he actually, funnily enough, cites the Torah itself, how they have the description of unclean or impure uh -huh. animals. Um, and, and he says that, you know, the, the ones that are, this list that, that, that is compiled of, of these, um, these unclean animals is, 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 is a result of the fact that it's been identified that they don't, the, the ones that have a particular shape or a, or a, or a, mm -hmm. a way of movement or a appearance that doesn't match where they're located we find very strange like okay. um, things that are underwater uh, f fish that have uh, they don't have fins and scales that okay. exist underwater is very weird for us right okay. um, so yeah this concept of the intercategorical I wonder if the if the Jew kind of maps onto that in some way like the because because it's hard to kind of put us down and label yeah. us as a thing where we're white but we're not christian we 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 come from the middle east but we're not mm -hmm. muslim like what what really are we so that's something um, maybe you can riff off as well um i i, I um i also know, i know this really good joke from jerry seinfeld he says um i think it i think it touches on this perfectly he says when you have a full head of hair, it's really beautiful. Like you want to touch it, you want to caress it, you want to kiss it. But as soon as a single hair manages to dislodge itself from the skull and go forth on its own, suddenly it's repulsive, disgusting. So I, I really think that 
perfectly mm-hmm. sums up this 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 like thing that we're talking about. Well, every one of my heads has managed to go for it on its own, so that um, <laughs> it resonates with me. Um, I think yeah. I think that idea of people being in this sort of liminal space is uh, interesting. I don't know that I necessarily agree with the description of you know in terms of kashrut in terms of those animals. I need to think a little bit more about 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 that. Sure, but certainly from a sociological perspective, uh, you know, people who are maybe sort of like us, but not quite like us. Uh, yeah. it, it, it prompts a certain degree of, you know, something maybe disconcerting uh, about it. Uh, and I think one of the curious phenomena that we see, uh, so far as Jews are concerned, is post-enlightenment, uh, post uh, their you know, emancipation, Jews are leaving villages, they're moving into cities, uh, they are reaping the rewards of general society. We witness, as a result of that, the largest voluntary mass conversion from Judaism to Christianity in the history of both religions, that, that in spite of these pretenses that Jews can now engage with broader society as Jews, the reality is baptism still serves as the ticket to, um, to society. But Jews are finding ways in, in large numbers to also hold on to elements of Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. And they might be shedding a lot of those traditions, but they're maintaining enough of the culture to still seem to, to the uh, to in the eyes of other observers to still seem different to still yes. be perceived as clannish yes. uh, that there's something about them that is distinct uh, and is resented uh, mm. then um, in the eyes of those people who perceive Jews as foreigners taking the best jobs uh, as interlopers um, uh, not not real Germans not really French and sure. um, there's a lot of people uh, throughout this period who are very uh, eloquently and uh, sophisticatedly rejecting those sorts of notions. Um, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that even in like the 1920s, it's perceived as very lowbrow to be really publicly advancing those sorts of ideas that, you know, we're all a little bit beyond that. Uh, and so it's one of the curious, I suppose, phenomena of history uh, that. Um, an organization like that of the Nazi party, which was perceived by many Germans as the punchline to a joke, uh, this, this sort of thuggery uh, and this really lowbrow um, uh, lack of engagement with, you know, with uh, the ideas of the time, should, should come for a whole host of different reasons to become sufficiently popular that they can win an election. Uh, that they can that they can form a government um, and bring those sorts of ideas into um, into the public space, uh, and it's uh, it's part of the tragedy, I suppose, that so many of those people who rejected those ideas didn't reject them strongly enough that they were a sticking point. They could tolerate them, uh, even if they thought that they were foolish and even if they thought that they were wrong. Uh, they could put up with them, uh, and uh, and that's and that's I suppose that's the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you, you touched on the point again there that um, being Jewish is not something that we can easily shake. Um, the, the same as you say that I mentioned before from Sartre, he talks about the inauthentic Jew as yeah. one who tries to uh, deny his Jewishness and try and distance himself mm. from the faults ascribed to him yeah. by uh, anti-Semitic mm. rhetoric. Um, that itself, I have to say, is a is a is a controversial idea. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's reasonable to suggest 
not talking about this from a religious standpoint, not thinking of this in terms of the halakha as to who is a Jew, but from a purely social and a cultural uh, vantage point that a person has the right to repudiate a part of their identity and for that not to be who they are. And, uh, and I think we have an obligation to take people at face value when they say, you know, who and what they are. Uh, and so I think the idea that, you know, a, a Jew who denies their own Jewishness and seeks to be a part of something else is in some sense an inauthentic Jew yeah. is, from my perspective, quite a problematic uh, Thing to say. viewpoint. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, also, yeah. it also ascribes to this idea that being a Jew, there is something essentialist to that, mm-hmm. that, that that is fundamentally who and what they are. And they can't, they can't leave Sure, it. sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I, when I was reading that, I was kind of reminded of a lot of people that I actually know personally who were raised in a, in a very religious environment and are kind of yeah. running away from mm. this identity that's, that's part of who they are. And it would probably, I don't know, maybe I'm out of my place to, to say this, but it might, it might serve them well to, to have a bit more of an acceptance towards it. Oh, I've no um, doubt. I've no doubt. But who, yeah. who Sartre has in mind might not even be those sorts of people, but also people who are born to parents who had converted to Christianity. Right. Um, that they are denying their Jewish origins, but that's not really for us to say whether they are denying something if they if their lived experience is one of embracing that which they do know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to suggest that they're denying something, I think skirts very dangerously close uh, to those ideas that there is mm-hmm. something biologically significant about them yeah. uh, and, uh, and something essentialist, that it denotes certain characteristics um, that, um, that they're suppressing, but which are there because because of what they are. I'm gonna go a little bit off the cuff here, just because I had this other thought. Um, do you believe in the concept of a Jewish soul, as opposed to just everyone being instantiated with a soul? Um, if, I, if I hesitate over answering this question, uh, it's only because I, I don't find it easy to so simply um, encapsulate what I believe when it comes to issues of a religious nature. Uh, I um, I feel that my my relationship with that is is perhaps a little too nuanced to, to be so easily put into words. And if I were to say, yes, I believe this or no, I don't believe this, uh, either way, I will be mischaracterizing my opinions. Uh, and my response would be the same if you ask me a question about my belief in God, uh, uh, for example, I think it's just a little bit difficult to 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 put into something mm-hmm. and to put into a soundbite. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually something that I'm kind of getting more of an appreciation of as I, in my own religious journey. Yeah. There's a lot that exists beneath the propositional level that, like, absolutely, that you feel and you embody, but. Absolutely, and there's much into words it doesn't. It is just look. There's much as well from a religious standpoint that I. I, I voluntarily subscribe to particular beliefs in as much as they are part of a framework that makes sense in accordance with those beliefs and um, in which they become part of a sort of a logical whole. But outside of that framework, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily profess a belief in them in quite the same way, mm-hmm. which maybe doesn't quite make sense. I appreciate that maybe a little bit of a word salad. Um, <laughs> no, that makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll get us back on track in that mm-hmm. case. That was a that was just a temporary thought spark that I had. Um, <laughs> I want to read a, a quote to you now, and get your take on it. Um, 
It's uh, from a short essay by Mark Twain. It's called Concerning the Jews. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Um, when I when I first heard this quote, I loved it. Who doesn't like being told that they're special? I think there's something about it that one can uh, one can hear and feel inspired by, uh, and feel perhaps maybe that they agree with or would like to agree with. It's a sentiment that seemed that struck me at the time as a flattering one. Having had occasion to think about it a little more, and I make no remarks as regards Mark Twain himself, because actually, to be perfectly frank, don't know in general what his attitudes were towards Jews. But just taking that quote in and of itself, I can't quite tell whether he has a positive view of Jews or a negative one, because there are statements that he makes there that could be taken uh, in quite a negative tone. Yeah, like the aggressive mind. Yeah. Yes, and I think one way or another, it is quite othering. It, it is quite this, you know, references to the Jew as somebody possessed of particular faculties, somebody who is ineradicable. You know, we've tried to get rid of them. <laughs> They're still here. Mm. Uh, I, I think there are elements of it that yeah, notwithstanding, you know, he's, the time in which he is writing, I think today, in any case, would would elicit a certain degree of discomfort to speak about people in that uh, in that fashion. Sure, sure. So I no longer feel that it's quite so flattering as I had once felt, and I now feel a little bit of ambivalent uh, as regards this line and have questions, I suppose, as regards what he meant. Sure, sure. But I mean, the the fact of history remains. Surely, no. That um, we've we've th there's this almost we're kind of living in this unending Purim story in a way. There's just like this constant uh -huh. onslaught from one direction or another, and you seem to just get through it some somehow. Look, the, the, this you know the idea that um, as we say in the the, the, the Haggadah every year, you know the idea that in each generation somebody arises who seeks to destroy us uh, is a particular idea that has uh, support from a number of quarters, and it would be facile to point out that, that you know there are also plenty of times in which you know Jews have been welcomed and in which they have thrived and in which they have um, lived not only in harmony with others but to the betterment of both um, because the reality is you know there are enough instances throughout history that would testify to the notion of Jews being persecuted to um, to give the truth of that sentiment, uh, I suppose. But the idea that, that people have sought to eradicate the Jews altogether, uh, I think is, is, is going a little too far. Uh, that has happened, that has happened in relatively recent history, and that has provided a lens through which we might view previous uh, history. But nobody previously had ever sought to physically exterminate yeah. 
all of the Jews. Uh, it's it's such a, a repulsive uh, and unthinkable idea that we can appreciate why so many people at the time, even while it was transpiring, couldn't quite get their heads around the fact that this is what was going on. There's there's no there's no precedent for it, uh, and uh, and 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 that persecution that people had experienced had taught them how to respond to persecution and unfortunately it had taught him taught them things that were of very little assistance when it came to the genocide that was perpetrated uh in europe uh in in, in the middle of the, sec- uh, the, the the 20th century mm-hmm. uh accommodating oneself to the ruling powers and uh and doing what is instructed is is not actually a way to um, to to uh, resist a genocide of that nature, even if it had been a way of dealing with previous forms of persecution, mm-hmm. it reflects not only a change in um, uh, the treatment of Jews. It reflects a change in the very nature of anti-Semitism itself. Mm-hmm. That if we look at uh, previous forms of of, of anti-Semitism, uh, as some historians refer to it as parliamentary anti-Semitism, this idea that you might um, get into Parliament and then pass various edicts uh, against Jews, limiting their role in um, in public life. And what all uh, parliamentary anti uh, Semites had experienced is that once you actually get into power, you realize the situation is a little bit more complex than you thought, and you need to cooperate with these groups and you need to appease those groups. And um, and always the greatest successes that these anti Semitic parties had was right at the very beginning, and then their popularity would decline. And what we see with Nazism is the rise of revolutionary anti Semitism. It's this idea that the political system itself is dominated by Jews. The state itself is some kind of Jew state, and the only way to actually uh, ameliorate that situation is not by passing laws that limit Jews, but overthrowing the system of government and setting up a whole new government that has that as its sort of foundational principle. And that's that's not a system that Jews had ever encountered before. This idea that built into the very fabric uh, of uh, of the state uh, is this complete and emphatic and uncompromising rejection of um, of not only uh, Judaism but everybody who comes from a family that had been Jewish. Uh, you know, even two generations back, yeah. um, you can't you can't accommodate yourself to that in any way. Uh, and I think that also just indicates how this, you know, in a sense, was something profoundly new. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the grand unifying anti-Semitic yeah. theory that yeah. they've fought together there. I have this voice in my shoulder telling me, enough with the anti-Semitism and Holocaust stuff, let's, let's move on to other things. And, and I'm like thinking to myself, why, why am I thinking that? Why am, I, why am I so opposed to like, what I perceive as like, this droning on about anti-Semitism and Holocaust-related things? And I, I wonder if it's related to... I feel like we, we tend to define ourselves in terms of like the persecution and suffering we face yeah. and it's very reactive mm. and we don't tend to like have discourse and like and, and, and form our identity based off like a more active pride. I think there is much uh, right now for people to be proud of uh, and, and that might serve as a very positive form of, of people's Jewish identity and I, and I like to believe it is as well. Uh, I do appreciate, uh, certainly in a city like Melbourne with such a large number of Holocaust survivors, one, one's never really going to get beyond the trauma of the previous uh, generations um, uh, and, and nor do I think we should, incidentally. I think it is something that needs to be understood and and can be made also itself into a positive identity. Mm-hmm. But I think we live in general in a tremendously exciting time. Uh, 
Uh, and if one thinks, for example, about how readily available uh, traditional Jewish literature has become, uh, such that quite literally, you know, on devices that one carries in one's pocket, uh, one can engage with sources that had previously been restricted to a minority of people who received a particular degree of training uh, that we now have broader sections of the Jewish community who are openly engaging with this material and commenting on it is something that I find very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we think about um, uh, the, the prophet uh, Isaiah and his vision of a day coming when knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the, 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 the ocean bed. And I feel like we are living in this time when people are actually broadly speaking, engaging uh, with so much uh, uh, literature and commenting on it at, at, at an unprecedented rate, uh, I think is something that is really remarkable and um, uh, uh, certainly tremendously inspiring. Uh, and I think um, there is much in terms of uh, Jewish expression uh, that we are finding today, a kind of a reburgeoning of, of different um, of individualistic modes of expression and um, uh, a communal um, public uh, modes of uh, Jewish expression, which I think is also uh, also truly uh, a wonderful thing. And uh, and if the events to which you are alluding and that we have been discussing might color people's uh, Jewish identity. I don't think it's coloring their identity to such a degree that they are staying at home and are fearful of, 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 of celebrating their Jewishness. Uh, I think certainly the Holocaust has the potential to be a negative part of a person's identity, but I think it also has the potential to be a very positive part of their identity too, uh, in as much as uh, it is an opportunity to also consider themes of resilience, uh, to think about resistance, uh, to think about uh, the sorts of choices uh, that people had the capacity to make uh, and, uh, and the ways in which those survivors themselves made meaning out of their experiences and went on to build lives for themselves as well. I think there is something there that is very positive not only in terms of the Jewish experience, but in terms of the human experience and in terms of uh, you know, what a, a human being is capable of enduring and, and, and what they have the resilience in so many instances uh, to, uh, to, 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 to survive uh, and to make, uh, to make meaning out of. I think there's something very beautiful to that as well. Mm-hmm. I think you answered my next question. <laughs> it sounds like you're, uh, you're an optimist in regards to the future of Judaism, roughly uh, speaking, I think so. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily identify as such. I feel that I'm something more of a of a, um, a, a pragmatist. Um, but I, I I see much reason to be hopeful uh, as regards what um, uh, what the future holds uh, in terms of Jewishness and uh, and, and and Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. So I want to switch gears now and. Um, maybe come back down to earth in, okay. in some respects. I want to ask you about your, your personal life and, 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 your, and, your, and your childhood, if you, can, mm-hmm. if you can talk me through um, you know, where you were raised and what your environment was like, what sure. your relationship was like with your parents and peers and all that. Okay. Uh, look, I'm, I'm born and bred in Sydney mm-hmm. um, and uh, come from a traditional family. 
uh, I, uh, like many uh, young Jews attending Jewish school, experienced um, uh, what sometimes uh, have been referred to as a kind of a Holocaust exhaustion. Um, there was so much information about the Holocaust, and I and I at a certain point in my um, in my uh, young adulthood. Uh, feared and rejected what I felt might be a negative uh, form of identity and um, and was very fixated on building a, a sort of a positive Jewish identity which uh, which for me personally was very centered around uh, Jewish literature the study the study of uh, Jewish literature um, I uh, after graduating I spent a period of time in yeshiva uh, and uh, I uh, was in a couple of different yeshivot that when I left, I suppose you might say the pendulum swung in the opposite direction for a while. And I, um, to use the, the um, uh, nomenclature that we used in yeshiva, I, I fried out uh, <laughs> and uh, I went, uh, I, I enrolled at university mm -hmm. uh, to pursue high uh, a degree in um, classical Hebrew and biblical studies, um, which, um, which eventually became a PhD. And I, uh, during that time, started to reawaken in myself a, a fascination with the rabbinic literature and I spent a lot of time uh, studying the Mishnah and subsequently got very seriously back into a, a study of the Gemara as well which has been since then a very kind of personal pursuit I tend to learn on my own uh, and I quite enjoy that experience and uh, it kind of went hand in hand with the process of becoming more religiously observant again um, for me studying is a little like davening it's it, it's a very kind of a personal uh, spiritual experience but it's quite an intellectual experience that i really enjoy as well and uh when i when i first started uh working in an environment with holocaust survivors uh to be perfectly frank uh i did so because i needed a job and uh <laughs> I, I i got i took a job at uh, at uh, the sydney jewish museum and I was working at the same time at the University of Sydney as a sessional uh, lecturer. And I discovered over the time that I was working at the museum, and I was at the Sydney Jewish Museum for six years, how, how inspiring were the stories of the survivors with whom I was working. I, I truly valued the, the relationship that I developed with some 40 or so Holocaust survivors who were working there uh, in that institution and I had survivors in my family as well my, my mother's family was Hungarian and so I'd grown up with their stories but this provided me an opportunity to not only work closely with uh, 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 other survivors but also to um, engage a little more critically and intellectually with the historiography of the Holocaust as well which then became uh, something of a primary focus uh, of mine uh, and so when the opportunity came here to move to Melbourne um, and this is now a little more than a year and a half ago uh, at, at, at late 2021 uh, to work at, uh, at the Melbourne Holocaust Museum I was very excited uh, for that opportunity um, in part because I married a Melbourne girl and uh, it was uh, always something on the cards that we would move to Melbourne but also in large part because uh, something very exciting, I think, about the Melbourne Holocaust Museum. Uh, it's an institution that has existed uh, since uh, uh, 1984, but given that it was undergoing this process of redevelopment uh, and, uh, and revamping, it, it felt very much like a new beginning and was a chance to be in something at the ground level uh, and, uh, and to help it develop. Uh, and um, 
there's something I think really wonderful about the Melbourne Jewish community that I that that I find very invigorating and very fascinating and very different to Sydney's, uh, in that Melbourne has a little bit of a slice of that interwar Polish Jewish politics uh, that uh, that we see uh, represented here in Melbourne. Uh, different of those um, political positions that existed amongst Jews uh, at that at that early time in terms of um, different uh, different forms of Zionism uh, in terms of different Hasidim uh, in terms of uh, a Bundist uh, uh, culture uh, within the city and uh, we've been sending our children to Shalom Aleichem um, mm. and uh, it's a beautiful a really beautiful school uh, and uh, and there's much about Jewish life here in Melbourne in general um, that um, that I've always found very compelling and um, mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly a, a very easy city in which to be to be Jewish uh, and uh, and so I suppose the rest of this history I've been here uh, now for a little more than a year and a half uh, and it was a great move coming down sure sure it's better coffee too oh yeah yeah, yeah. except for this instant one I'm sure no, I like this actually <laughs> it's actually I like that imagery of like the continuation of, of maybe pre-war mm. Polish society now being re, re-implemented yes. here in Melbourne. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I never thought about that. There are echoes of it. There's a yeah. degree, I think, to which over time things sort of uh, flatten out. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and, and certain ideas become dominant and might cross over and become a sort of interden- interdenominational, if that's really the right word that I'm, that I'm kind of looking for. Um, but... Um, but there's but there's there's a there's there is something of a continuation there. Yeah. Um, at least even if only in name, mm-hmm. uh, in some instances, which I which I quite like. Yeah, yeah. I also like how you said um, when you were younger you had this Holocaust exhaustion, mm. and now things have kind of done a yeah. full one eighty, and you're and you're you know you're you're doing it full time. Yeah. I like that that that's sort of that journey that you've had in your life has led you there. Um, I wanted to. Maybe quiz you a little bit on um, your. You said you got a PhD in biblical studies. Yeah. Um, for me, when I I grew up religious and um, I went through a sort of teenage rebellion and I started to explore, let's say, uh, alternative worldviews and perspectives. And I remember one Yom Kippur, I was sitting in, in shul and I was reading uh, a book called The Bible Unearthed by Israel Finkelstein. Oh uh, yes. Yeah, he's, a, he's an Israeli archaeologist. Yeah, and um, I was really... Uh, it struck a chord with me, let's say. Yeah, in the, in the sense that it, like, it was providing a, a revisionist account of like biblical events and the history and, and um, that cynical view almost that it has. Um, I, was, I was drawn to that like, in the sense that it's not really so much about this like, you know, supernatural... The description of events that's going on and like the, this, this true history but rather this um, piece of political propaganda that um, was used by it was used to unite the ancient kingdom of Israel um, and um, so I was I was struck by that and, and lived with that for a long time and then I think only recently I'm kind of coming more to wake up to the fact that there's uh, the Torah is a lot deeper than that there is psychological truths that yes. are deeply encoded in there and um i was actually at a, at a, a talk at uh east melbourne synagogue on, on sunday night by david solomon he was talking yeah. about the zohar and we were going through this one passage where he talked about how the torah has actually got 
multiple levels, layers to it. Like at the most superficial layer is the literal story. And then the level beneath that is kind of encoded the, the, the way to live a good life and, and you know, the, Lord, the commandments and, and all that. And then layer beneath that is sort of a, a path to a higher wisdom or enlightenment. I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. butchering uh, that, that cross-pollination of ideas there. And then at the very bottom is, is, a, is a glimpse at like the fundamental nature of reality mm-hmm. and the single unity uniting everything itself. And so I wonder from your biblical studies that you underwent, how much of it was regarding the outermost layer of the superficial stories? How much of it was kind of diving a bit deeper into the way to live your life? And um, okay, we'll start there and then I'll, I'll get to the next Look, I think I think there are fundamentally different ways of approaching a text. I, 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 don't, I don't personally subscribe to the idea that um, the academic approach is the outer layer, while uh, another approach might look at the layers beneath that, because mm. I think so far as academics approach text, there are multiple layers to that as well, um, that they can mm. deal with um, what is referred to as source criticism, for example, where they engage with the compositional integrity of a text and the various points in time at which the text might have been committed to writing and what its various uh, textual sources were at every one of those stages and identifying various corruptions in the text uh, and, and so forth. And you can you can go, even within that sort of academic method, you can go layers deeper and you can look at well, what is the final form of the text, uh, what what uh, sort of uh, a rhetorical impact did it have, who was its target audience, what are the ways in which it was used. and you alluded to this in Israel Finkelstein when he makes reference not only to the compositional composition of the text, but its use as a piece of propaganda for the purposes of uniting a kingdom. Um, you can go you know, layers below that, uh, and there are academics who will look at um, uh, sort of you know what they might refer to as biblical hermeneutics, looking at the text through various types of lenses and reinterpreting the text in various ways. You have feminist hermeneutics, you have Marxist hermeneutics. Uh, so I think. All of these approaches themselves can be possessed of multiple layers. They all operate from different types of assumptions uh, as to the ultimate purpose of that investigation. Mm-hmm. And I would really personally like to suggest that there's multiple ways in which we can conceive of truth. And I remain very sympathetic to that um, uh, academic mode of engagement. And mm-hmm. it was something that I had engaged with for a long time. And uh, I don't feel that that time was wasted. I feel that I got a tremendous a- amount uh, out of that, um, uh, out of that uh, process. But, but I feel that that was one, one type of truth uh, that, I was, that I was seeking to understand. There are other types of truths. One can believe, uh, as I do, for example, um, that the exodus from Egypt, uh, the revelation at Sinai, the sojourn in the wilderness, the conquest of the land, those things are all literally true, even if not historically true. And that that might sound like an odd sort of distinction because how can it then be literally true if it yeah. didn't happen in history? I don't I don't personally believe that if I could sit in a time machine and go back to a particular point in time, I could witness those events taking place as they are being described. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I believe that that they're not true just in a, an allegorical sense uh, or a metaphorical sense, but that they are literally true. Uh, and um, I appreciate there is a tension there. I quite enjoy that tension, to be honest. I think sometimes the tension between things is really 
where the interesting uh, uh, insights uh, actually occur. Uh, and um, there's a wonderful book actually, uh, uh, from memory, I think it's by Norman Solomon. I might, I might be incorrect about the title uh, uh, and uh, uh, I might be incorrect about the author and I think I'm gonna be incorrect about the title <laughs> as well. Um, and, and I'm hesitating to say what it's actually called, but he has actually a chapter there where he talks about various types of truth that resonated with me very much. Um, but um, but uh, I, I think when engaging with things uh, from a religious standpoint, for want of a better way of describing it, when engaging with them from a scientific standpoint, again, for want of a better way of describing it, you're aiming at different types of truth, all of which can be literal, uh, at, 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 not, not on different levels, but on, on, on really the same level as one another. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that oftentimes uh, fairy tales themselves are some of the most pregnant vehicles for, for, for truth. Uh, and, uh, and, and and the conveyance of ideas that are that are literally mm -hmm. literally true. Sure, sure. And I guess maybe the fact that the, the Torah itself is so pregnant with mm. multiplicity of truths, maybe that maybe that's the reason why it's endured as yeah. maybe arguably the most famous book of all time. Surely, I want to talk about circumcision. Okay, uh, <laughs> everyone's favorite topic. It's uh, obviously one of the commandments in the Torah, and. Um, to the modern Gen Z Jew, let's say, uh, the rationale that circumcision being a covenant with God sounds probably abstract and highfalutin. I mean, uh -huh. the arguments that you can make against it, that it's barbaric and outdated and nonsensical, are like very obvious and easy to make. And to be honest, it's something I personally struggle with as I come to that stage in life where you know I'm starting to look down the barrel of potentially having a, a child having a son mm -hmm. and then having to make that decision and I find that I struggle with it sometimes because I want to want to circumcise my son I think that drive comes from somewhere very deep maybe uh, I'm not sure exactly but um I find that when I think about it and when I talk about it with friends, it, it almost seems like we're doing this kind of mental gymnastics and we're like digging deeper and deeper for mm. like a more clever rationale to justify doing it. Are we missing the point? Are we, are we, are we going about it the wrong way? Is it something that you shouldn't think about but you should just do? Or? I, don't, I don't think there's anything that one should not think about. Uh, mm. And I think it's good that, um, that people are bothered by it. Uh, and uh, seeking to understand it and are then bothered by the mental gymnastics that they might feel that they are doing in justifying something that they may feel is unjustifiable. Uh, I, am, I am all for living the examined life. One, one wants to engage with those things, whatever the outcome is of their decision. And even if the outcome of their decision is, here is a thing, whether circumcision or anything else, that I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it because I feel beholden to a particular uh, a system of law uh, that, 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 that insists upon my doing it, but at least to have that opportunity to analyze, to engage a little bit in the nature of that system and in the nature of one's relationship with it, I think is a very positive thing to do. I think a terrible thing to do is to turn off that faculty of inquiry and just do something uh, because it needs to be done. Uh, I think it's uh, it's good to wrestle with things, uh, yeah. to engage with them a little bit, uh, and um, uh, ultimately to to make one's decision. Even as I say, at the risk of repeating myself, even if the decision that one makes is 
you know, the halacha is X and that's what I'm going to do, to at least have had that experience of engaging with those halachic norms and mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. about them uh, sure. is, uh, I think, a big part of that process. True. Yeah, and I guess that's probably like the essence of what it means to be Jewish. I mean, doesn't um, Israel mean mm-hmm. he who wrestles with mm-hmm. God? Um, that was just the imagery I had when you used that particular word, wrestling. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe the process of, of struggle, even if you decide maybe not to do it, can't necessarily construe that as as, as not living in accordance with Jewish values because you're at least struggling with things in, in a sense. Um, as an initiation right though, I feel like it serves an important purpose. There's, there's this well-documented psychological phenomenon that the more grueling and difficult any given initiation right is, the more bonded the people are subsequently to the group that they are getting initiated into. If that is so, um, it is more so an initiation right for the parents than it is for the child um, who, who will not be mindful of any of these distinctions and will grow up with a sense of normality. The parents are allowing that normality for the child, but they themselves are the ones who are undergoing some kind of um, statement, uh, uh, some kind of uh, adherence to cultural norms that I think for them, and I can only speak for myself, was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess because like from, from your perspective, once you do decide to make a big decision like yeah. that for the thing that you cherish most in yeah. the whole world, it's like all of the subsequent decisions to then, you know, send your kid to a Jewish school and, and enroll them in, in, in various Jewish activities and, and engage in Jewish festivals and whatnot, that all falls into place because you've already made the much harder decision up front. As a parent, is that is that kind of the perhaps? Yeah. I think everybody is different uh, in this regard, and I think something that you will find, uh, as as I find, as I'm sure other parents find, is that there are continual processes of engaging one's children um, and uh, a continual opportunity to um, to to. Um, uh, acculturate them to various types of norms. Um, it doesn't necessarily relate to schooling, um, life within a, within a general Jewish society um, mm-hmm. and, um, and in the home. There are lots of opportunities to, um, to, 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 um, to reflect those ideas, to celebrate those sorts of ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'm just looking at the clock where we're, we're getting close to the end. Sure. Um, I do want to ask you one last question mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a bit of a fun question or, may, or maybe just something that just to reflect on more generally but what things do you wish to persist beyond your death goodness um, look I would like in general I hope that this is an answer to your question I would like in general to see uh, more critical engagement with um, Jewish literature. Uh, I I would like to witness during my lifetime uh, more uh, of an increase um, in the number of people who um, connect with this literature and identify with it as something that belongs to them. I think what oftentimes happens is people who feel to some degree alienated by that material 
say this doesn't speak to me, it doesn't belong to me, I'm not interested in it. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's a, a terrible shame. Uh, I think that in as much as it is a person's birthright, uh, I think um, what I would like to see is a degree to which people are more empowered to say, look, you know, these are the things in this literature that, that bother me, but they're mine and they belong to me. Uh, and no one has the right to tell me how I should relate to them or how I should interpret them. Um, but as a personal thing for themselves to at least make this something that is their own. Uh, I would like to see that during my lifetime and I would certainly hope that that would be something that would continue beyond my lifetime, that there might continue to be this resurgence of interest uh, in, um, in those sorts of materials. Beautiful. Simon, it's been an absolute honour to speak to you today. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.